I'm Lisa. I'm Laura. Welcome to Lean Back. Today's episode is fear. So, Laura, when we think about fear, what kinds of fear come to mind? Definitely the most common is fear of death. I mean, I think that is probably the kind of fear that most frequently, you know, keeps people up at night. <laughs> it's fairly, it's fairly uh, existential. Yeah. And it's also just like, it's a reality that uh, exists for everyone. Yeah, I think for more people that fear is more intense and creates varying levels of anxiety depending on how precarious their life feels, you know? Um, I think for me, that is not a primary fear at all. It does not permeate my day-to-day life. I'm not, I'm not really worried about death. I don't fear it. I feel like my fears are primarily around, like, the loss of autonomy, of not having independence, like physical independence, emotional independence, fiscal independence, like that is that motivates me. I don't I don't know that I have a ton of anxiety about it happening. Like it doesn't feel like it's constraining me, but I do pretty much everything in my power <laughs> to make sure that I do not lose any kind of autonomy. And that is so much more I don't know, important to me than the fear of death, which seems certain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it's it's ridiculous to be afraid of death because it is like just a certainty that you have to live with. I can't say that I'm not afraid of death. My fear of death largely stems from the fact that I'm like spending all this time building a person and it's like a (laughs) self-preservation kind of thing. Death just makes it kind of meaningless in some sense. I have much greater, like, visceral fear about aging. And I think that's a type of fear of death, but it's just, yeah, like... prolonged. <laughs> yeah. A fear of the fragility of life. I think a lot of people fear aging and they fear losing the integrity of their body or their mind or their natural functions or they have anxiety about, I don't know, animal attacks or, you know, things that would really threaten the integrity of the body. And I don't know that I fear about that so much as I do worry about the integrity of my mind, mostly, <laughs> since it's like my primary way of being in the world is through knowledge and thought and speech I think a lot of people, though, also have intense fears about separation, you know, whether it's like abandonment or rejection or not being valued by others or being cast aside by the culture. And that seems like a legitimate fear. I mean, I'm a total extrovert with a giant community of people that I care about and that care about me. But I think for people who don't cultivate that kind of relationship to publics or communities, the fear of separation can be really devastating. And I think it's also linked to the fear of the death of the ego. And I see this a lot in my peers, and men especially, where there is such a fear of humiliation or shame 
that they don't feel worthy of attention or affection or love, the fear that they cannot keep their ego intact, then either pushes them one or two ways. One is the overcompensation through domination, and the other is the complete retreat from personal intimacy. And so I see that fear of the ego death like pretty regularly. I think that's pretty interesting because I think that is a really common experience. A fear of being separated from other people or um, being different or being even fear of being displaced from who, like your idea of yourself. But I don't think people recognize that as fear. But they they love it because all of the man movies are about it. It's about some asshole cast off into space or Tom Hanks on an island with a volleyball (laughs) or somebody at the bottom of the sea who's trapped or somebody who's trapped in the future and can't get back and it's dystopian. Like every single man movie is about ego death. And so... I mean, they might not consciously talk about it as the fear of the death of the man self, but like the entire man popular culture is about fear of ego death. I'm sure it's because I'm, as a debater, I lost all the time, you know, and as a writer, we get rejected all the time. So there is, there's no healthy space to exist if you're putting your ideas into the world where you don't get rejected. And so I think people who are productive academics have to come to terms with the ego death in a way that maybe others do not. I, that is not something that motivates me at all either. So so what happens when, like, that kind of fear plays out? What happens to people? I mean, I see, like, people are afraid of failing or f- afraid of being rejected. I see a lot of responses that are very much about self-preservation. People get very focused on their own achievements. I think it's very difficult to be open to other people and their process of self-revelation and symmetrical disclosure without also setting boundaries. And I think for women in particular, I have this conversation all the time where women are trying to set boundaries and they're also trying really, really hard to understand their partner's perspectives, whether they're male or female. But for women in a heterosexist culture who are doing emotional work of heterosexuality, it's like 10 times more difficult because all of the discourse they're consuming is teaching them how to feel and think empathy for other people. And none of the men's texts do that. As men have the fear of death or aging or worry about the integrity of their body or they fear the loss of autonomy or they fear a rejection or ego death, they do not seek out or produce discourses of empathy for themselves or others. And that makes it very, very difficult, I think, for them to connect with a deeper sense of self that can overcome these fears and to connect with others where they can build communities. And so you see all of these 30-something and older men who are angry and lonely and resentful and overcompensate for these fears and cannot connect with other people. And that is super tragic to me. That is totally motivated by fear. Now, on the other hand, I think a bunch of people do other behaviors to manage their fears, right? So I think of thrill seekers and people who love the thrill. We were talking earlier about skydiving or, you know, adrenaline kinds of things as a way of fighting off the panic that arises about their fear of their own mortality. I think that's totally a strategy that some people use. I mean, some people 
read a lot of self-help and some people use spirituality and some people use community work. I mean, I think those are all avenues that people use to deal with their sense of mortality and their fears about connecting with others. But ultimately, I think there are a ton of people who run away from managing the fear and it undercuts their ability to do intimacy work with others and feel connected in a positive, uplifting you know, socially productive way. And that seems too bad to me. There's this um, poem I really love by Robert Creeley. And it's on the on the surface kind of about a confrontation with the void. He's realizing that life is meaningless. And a line in the poem goes, why not just buy a goddamn big car? And I think that is how a lot, a lot of people respond to the fact that life is meaningless. They end up buying something or yes. attaching themselves to certain social structures like pursuing power or pursuing wealth, pursuing some type of status, pursuing the presidency. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I do know. I think I think consumerism is totally linked to fear. There's a great part in Michael Moore's documentary on Bowling for Columbine. And he's interviewing Marilyn Manson. And I show it in class all the time because Marilyn Manson's from my hometown and I like his art. And he's like, the entire culture is a series of fears circulated, tied to consumption. And he was talking about the Bush declaration of war and the invasion of Afghanistan and later Iraq. But I think that that's very true, that there is a close correlation between fear and consumption, and that that's unhealthy and alienating, and it drives people away from actual pleasure or contentment or, you know, really productive social work that builds communities. Do you think that there are people who feel pleasure from fear, like where the fear response stimulates pleasure as well? Is there any pleasure in that, or is it just habit? I don't know. I don't think there's pleasure in fear itself because it's a pretty <laughs> negative emotion. Yeah. It's a feeling that you like do not want at all, but there are like emotions associated with fear that I think could probably generate pleasure. Like uncertainty to me is like a positive thing that can bring pleasure. Going into something and like not, knowing what the outcome might be like that is an invigorating feeling for me fear isn't <laughs> the fears remain but the things that are associated with the fears can be productive and positive to me you know as i was thinking about prepping for this recording i was thinking about whether or not i'm a fearful person or if i act out of fear very often and i'm not and i don't and i think the reason is why is because like, as a very young person, I made the decision to consciously confront fears and do things that were outside of my comfort zone because I thought that they would make me a more interesting person, not necessarily just to others, but to myself. And I feel like self-compassion is sort of the antidote towards this kind of crippling anxiety that existential fears can produce. Like, if you can learn how to love yourself and forgive yourself and <laughs> have compassion for how hard it is to be human in a world full of humans, 
that there is more space to be able to manage the anxieties of the unknown in ways that create more space for the kind of play around uncertainty that you're talking about. I was also thinking about how we have a, a death culture in the United States that is irrationally focused on the fear of death, but then that also shuttles out the elderly to die alone in these basically these elderly camps in nursing homes where they don't see their friends and family and that's super lonely and terrible and anti-cultural. And then we also have this hyper rhetoric of life. It's all about protecting life, except that it doesn't. It doesn't doesn't feed the hungry. It doesn't care for the sick. I was thinking a lot about how with the fear of death in the American culture, because we have pushed it so far away and it's so alienated from the cell. There's also a fear of life. There's a fear of living and feeling the feelings of living. I just feel like a lot of people are resistant to feel anything and that there's uncertainty in how to feel intense emotion across a wide range of vectors, whether it's pleasure or pain. Like people are all avoiding feeling. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be something that's not talked about, you know, from a psychological perspective as well as like the fear of death, which is fairly pat and routine and the way that psychoanalysis has understood human development. But the fear of feeling things intensely, it drives a lot of alienation, I think. That reminds me of... Um Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide, Uh and like kind of the ironic catchphrase that is used in association with the guide, which is don't panic, which is funny because there's so many things to be afraid of. You know, like you're presented with a million reasons to be like anxious or afraid (laughs) or to feel like certain things. Mm -hmm. And some of them are exciting and some of them are very scary and some of them are just like you're confronted with the meaninglessness of life and that's maybe something to be afraid of too. Um, and all the while it's just like, don't panic. <laughs> um, but it's funny to me because it's basically demonstrating that all of those feelings and all of those things that are scary and unknown are just like a reality of life and saying don't panic is like terrible it's just like useless <laughs> it's totally it's just useless. useless because those are that's part of being alive but on the flip side of that there's a different catchphrase which you could interpret the same way but i think it's like the opposite which is keep calm <laughs> and carry on you know i hate it's it so, we hate it we hate it um terrible and, yeah and I think about that because it's asking people to ignore things that are dangerous or that they're afraid of. When I say, like, keep calm and carry on, it's almost like, nothing to see here, folks. Yeah. You know, like, and that's <laughs> but, <laughs> that's but then dangerous. it's also consumers, like, buy the sign and put it in your house as your mantra. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And I like, it's not that I oppose the calmness as a strategy. It's the carrying on that I oppose, I think, you know, that I'm repulsed by. To me, it just reads as complacency. Yeah. I'm like, the world is a weird, interesting, magical, (laughs) fraught place. And if you're just sort of marching along towards the future, of course, you're going to miss all the cool stuff on the way. 
I mean, it's funny that you brought up Douglas Adams. I love Tom Robbins. He's like my guru, and I'm sure I'll talk about him in the love episode. But I love his books because they're all about the weirdness of life and embracing the weirdness. And um, I like the way that he talks about human nature, because I think one of the things that people come to terms with, especially in adolescence, as they start dating and exploring other people, is that they are never going to be completed by somebody. You know, like there's nobody who's ever going to fully know them and that ultimately we're alone in the world. And for a lot of people, that can be very scary. I find that (laughs) delightful, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even while it's, I think about that a lot, I think about that more than my own death. But I think that when, when people are using like romance or sentimentality or these things that we have negative attachments to as a vehicle to find somebody that's going to see them all the way and know their soul, that is just seems like so misguided to me because obviously you're going to be dissatisfied with that person because they can't see all the things and know all the things. I mean, you know, we're not Vulcans. We can't mind meld. You can't see all of somebody's experiences. And so we get bored and we move on to somebody else thinking that they will fulfill the things that the other person, you know, has, has been unable to do. And so in some ways, like the keep calm and carry on makes me be just very sad for people who have cast their entire lot with monogamy or with thinking that there's these stable institutions that will provide security and that somehow that will be enough for them. Mm-hmm. When all of those structures are doing is perpetuating the same kind of anxiety and conformity that alienate them from themselves and from other people. I think it's insulting to me because it ignores the value of fear. There are reasons. <laughs> yeah. Like really Legitimate good, things to fear. Really good reasons mm-hmm. to be afraid. And I think it was originally made to placate people's fears about bombings yeah. in, in London. And that's like a legitimate thing that people should be afraid of. (laughs) I think that keeping calm also just like reads to me, like I said, as, as, um, conformity and that it's like asking you to not resist authority and to not challenge or question things. Fear in some ways I think is, it provokes, it provokes you to get out of your comfort yeah. zone. I was, I've been rereading Laura Kipnis's Against Love. And um, I, I love that book because it's all about sort of what happens when people have extramarital affairs or, you know, any kind of emotional or physical affair outside of their primary relationship. And I, I love that book because she's like, when people become afraid... They act out on desires that are unfulfilled, that they've never explored. And that can be a really vitalizing life force for them that can help transform their lives. And there is probably value in that. And psychotherapists will tell you the same thing, that lots of relationships get better after extramarital affairs, which is like the secret that nobody wants to admit, but is totally often true, is that, you know, as people explore parts of themselves that they feel like they haven't had a chance to, they become more whole and more human, and they have a wider outlook, and they have a different relationship to themselves and others. And that seems to be a productive thing. The state doesn't think so, of course, because they want us to keep calm and carry on. But for day-to-day life and the way that people feel things, people have affairs because they want to feel again. You know, they want to feel sexy or they want to feel wanted or they want to feel inspired 
or they want to feel engaged, or they want to they want to feel things deeply that the culture has cut them off from because of conformity and fear. And I think that the, the American culture does that in a bunch of ways. Certainly, does it through that consumerism and through war culture and through fear of death and life. You and I were talking about you know hyper gun culture being part of this thing, but. In my classes, I often teach a book that's called The Architecture of Fear, and it's edited by Nan Ellen. It's brilliant. And we look at space, like physical space, and how it creates fear. The suburbs is a space of fear because people are cut off from living close to one another and they don't know their neighbors. Or walls and gated communities and home security systems and police patrols. And there are all kinds of ways in which Americans in particular create physical space that inspires them to be fearful, right? Where, like, the technologies of living in their communities inspire the fight-or-flight response, the production of cortisol, the feelings of insecurity and stress, and then that causes them to build their landscape in such a way that it reinforces those things. And so... There are good reasons to be afraid. There are also really dumb ones that are human made, that are a product of a product of fear. And I think that, you know, for us at Lean Back, it's useful to be able to take a step back and say, what is being produced by fear here and how is fear being consumed? And the landscape is one place to look at that. I think that's really interesting because we were just talking about fear being the useful thing for people. And I think in your discussion of landscapes of fear demonstrates how fear can also be really damaging is a huge part of why everyone feels alienated. And in fact, it's created a fear of other people mm-hmm. and which has driven like a lot of the gun <laughs> obsession and which is actually played out in gun policies. Now it's, you know, driven the U S is like vastly overinflated incarceration system and (laughs) military budget yeah absolutely and now it's driving a lot of political policy that is inhumane obviously i i work on civil rights discourses and i'm thinking of course about the black lives matter movement and about police brutality and extrajudicial police killings of unarmed black kids and adults there are tons of people in America who have reasonable fears of the police. It's not like one bad cop somewhere one time did a bad thing. It's a cultural phenomenon of no accountability for the state and hyper accountability for black people where there is no justice. That's a legitimate thing to be afraid of. So in some ways, I feel like I can be cavalier about fear And part of that's my whiteness and part of that's my class privilege. But there are real reasons to be concerned. And, you know, I sort of had a just a real public opposition to body camera bills on police officers in 2014. I just it's a terrible idea. And I see why people want to believe that police surveillance cameras are a panacea, but they're not. They get turned off. Cops use them to hem up kids of color and force confessions on video, right, where the kids are forced to plea out. And it's really a bad, bad, bad thing because it's surveillance is part of fear culture. And the cops are constantly 
consumed with rhetorics of fear about who are the dangerous elements in culture and who has to be put down or neutralized and who has to be contained. And all of that stuff is just virulently racist. It's, it's absurd in its racism. And it's premised on the eradication of whole peoples from the culture. So that's a legitimate thing to be afraid of, right? That's, that's not an irrational mm-hmm. fear. That is not, there's nothing playful there to be had. That's just total state violence. So it seems like fear uh, creates more fear, you know, like that's a fear. Fear has constructed this system of (laughs) subjugating other people and creating boundaries and isolating people who are different from you. And that has in turn created more fear. So like, but it's not just that it's not just different. So it's about power. You, you sort of nodded to this earlier in the episode, but it's not that the police fear black and brown people so much as they have, they have a ton of power from mobilizing fear to contain them. Think about it this way. It's called homophobia, but the problem is not a fear of queers. The problem is the fear of the queer in oneself. Hyper masculine, anti-gay violence is not directed at the fear of queers. It's about the fear of the self. Same thing is true of the police. They're afraid of their own monstrosity and their own predilection for violence. And so they externalize that as the fear of the other. But all of that is, is really the inability to confront the self in all of its, you know, problems. Because all of us have you know, monsters within us. We're going to talk about this in another episode, but, you know, the externalizing, like fear is the externalization of self-loathing and the lack of self-compassion. And it's just a, it's a terrible way to frame culture through the lens of demonizing an entire group of people because you can't accept yourself and your limitations. That begets the question of how we deal with fear productively then or how we it depends on who that we is (laughs) (laughs) or how we learn you know to love ourselves so and not fear things like being different or i mean is there a way to overcome fear or you and I are moving really quickly between a bunch of levels of analysis, between what happens within an individual person in the psyche and how structural conditions create or maintain or perpetuate fear. And so from the personal level, it seems to me that you know, self-compassion is a way that you can individually handle your own fears insofar as they're the fears that are a product of the existential condition of being a human. And, you know, certainly mindfulness is a way to do that and caring for others and learning empathy all of those are like muscles and they need to be stretched right you build muscle by repetitive action that is increasingly more difficult that's how you improve your relationship to yourself is through increasing that muscle strength through repetition with increased difficulty Um, but in terms of like structural fear of structures (laughs) that are actually killing and harming people I mean, social justice is the only way to ameliorate that, and that's by building strong communities and being a part of community action against the institutions that are killing and maiming and, you know, psychically destroying um, communities of practice. And that's obviously, in some ways, 
harder work, right? Because you're working with the collective and not just the self, but it's ultimately more rewarding. So if you look at, like, say, the narratives of people who have worked in justice movements in the U.S. and abroad, they talk a lot about how the relationships forged in those community movements really shaped their sense of self and their values. And they, they really understood a deep humanism, right, that was unshakable because they had done such um, tremendously courageous work in their communities. That seems to be the only way really to, to handle the fear that is based around institutions and structures of power. It also seems to me like community building can like uh, trickle down through all of the levels that you were uh, talking about. Community building can help ameliorate individual fears and help people understand, like feel connected um, to something outside of themselves and to feel um, like they have a purpose. Um, so I think I think community building is definitely. Um, a great solution. You know, you were talking earlier about meaning and how life is essentially meaningless and that's the thing that people fear. And that's true to one extent, except that humans are symbol-making creatures. And so it is incumbent upon us to make the symbols and build the relationships that give us a sense of meaning because that's like what we do. That's, mm-hmm. that's like what being conscious is about. I think that to manage fear, you have to assert agency. That means taking charge of your body and your thoughts and your desires and acting on them and fulfilling them yourself. Nobody's going to come and do that for you. And there are obviously forces that want to take away the kinds of feelings that you could have. But, you know, when people talk about agency and using agency that's what they're talking about is how do you think deeply, very deeply and concretely about what it is that you want. And those are questions about feelings. How do you want to feel? And what means are going to, are you going to use to achieve those feelings? And how intensely do you want to feel them? And the more that people run away from intense feelings of pleasure or pain or revulsion, disgust or contentment or play, the more they are going to fear all sorts of things that have the possibility of inciting those feelings inside their bodies. So, yeah, I think that community action can trickle down, but the thing that is the variable is how much agency are you exerting in your life to do the things that you want to do. And I think if you look around America, people on the whole would say that they are not exerting the agency that they want. They're not living the lives that they want. They're dissatisfied and the the way that they're spending their time or the way that their relationships are arranged or the way that their communities are structured by violence or the way that social services don't provide for a healthy and happy community, even though that's what a democracy should do. All of those things that make people feel like their life has less meaning are all things that can be overcome through individual and collective attention to agency. That's why I like when you mentioned mindfulness earlier because I think people are often attaching themselves to ideals and goals and habits habits, that are damaging to them. And I think mindfulness is a lot about stopping and 
uh, feeling and seeing and, <laughs> you know, like assessing your environment and your feelings and yourself and the people around you. And But I mean, all of these things assume a certain level of educational privilege and time to be able to give deep thought to the self. And that is a very sort of bourgeois thing. And if the goal is to create a healthy democratic culture, then that means creating the space for people to have leisure time to be able to do that work. If you want a safer community and a safer culture, that means everybody gets fed. That means everybody has access to high quality public education. That means that employment is high in lots of places and in lots of ways. That means that wages are high enough that people can feed their families. If you want a safe culture that doesn't make you feel fearful, that's that's what it looks like. And there is a cost to that. And the trade-off is in all of these other apparatuses of fear. So that means a smaller military budget, <laughs> or right? That there are trade-offs with other things uh, that are totally manageable in a country as rich as this. But that that's what it looks like to be able to actually deliver the kind of security that would promote healthier relationships between all kinds of people in the United States. And so insofar as people are working against hunger relief or working against public education or working against higher ed or working against raising the, the minimum wages tremendously or they're working for tax breaks for millionaires or they're working for those sorts of structures that perpetuate inequality, all they're doing is creating the conditions for more actual fear and insecurity. And that is really detrimental behavior. And we're watching this in this electoral cycle. I mean, tr Trump is certainly t tapping into tremendous fears among working class white people whose you know, bottom line has eroded tremendously since the Reagan administration. Now, they don't know where to place the blame, but they certainly know that they feel anxious and insecure and afraid all the time. And they are responding to somebody who's speaking that language of fear. And anybody who refuses to acknowledge that that is the emotional economy that's being tapped into is completely naive about what's happening in America and what has happened um, with the idea of trickle-down economics and the massive uh, rich-poor gap that started under Reagan was massively exacerbated under Bush. And, you know, those are the kinds of structural, really damaging economic policies that make fear such a daily part of so many people's lives, it seems to me. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by, or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayette.